the tomb that once contained the body of Jesus Christ has been the focus of attention, not just by the four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but this empty tomb has been the focus of many people's eyes for centuries, for a very long time. And in the next few minutes, I'd like us to focus our attention on that tomb again, asking two questions. One, what's in the tomb? And two, what's not in the tomb? So number one, what's in the tomb? If I were to ask you the question, what is in the tomb? Most of us would say nothing. The tomb is gloriously empty. And we would agree with the title given to the passage, I suppose, in John 20. In our NIV translations, you've got these little headers above the text. Those weren't in the original text, of course. These are just little additions by the translators to help us comprehend what's about to come in the following paragraph. And the NIV translation, the little header there says, the empty tomb. Do you see that? Most of you have got NIV, I'm sure. Well, I want to show you tonight that that's actually a little bit misleading. A little bit. For John actually shows us that the tomb isn't empty. It actually contains two things of note that help to communicate to us the meaning of Easter. Because I think, actually, if it was going to be a better little heading that the NIV translators put in there, I would put the empty tomb. Because they're trying to get the, the message across, of course, that Jesus isn't in the tomb, right? But it should actually, if you want to be really accurate, it should say the empty tomb apart from some linen. Okay? Apart from some linen. Now, feel free to edit your copy if you've got one there. It's, uh, this is a significant thing, though. The linen, verses 5 and 6 of our text. John talks a lot about linen here. In verse 1, we find, of course, in terms of our context, that Mary discovered the stone has been rolled away. She had, she had seen with her very own eyes where the two men who had buried the Lord Jesus had buried him. She hadn't gone to the wrong tomb at all. She saw it with her own eyes. She was there on that first Easter day. She finds the stone rolled away. She runs to fetch the disciples. Peter and John run to the tomb. And you've got to love the narrator's touch in John 20, don't you? John is the one who is the beloved disciple, the other disciple in this passage. And uh, it sounds like he's having a cheeky dig at Peter's fitness levels, isn't he? Verse 4, the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in. But at what? What did John's eyes fall on? Because that's where our eyes are focused, by the way that's narrated. Not nothing, but the strips of linen lying there. But he did not go in. Verse 6. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw what? Nothing. The strips of linen lying there. The exact same phrase is repeated. As well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself. Separate from the linen. Now what is this strange fascination with linen? In the Apostle John. Why not just say they looked in and didn't find the body of Jesus. You ever asked that? What's the big deal with the fabric? Does John fancy a career in textiles at some point? No, John's emphasis on the linen is his way of underlining the facts of the resurrection from us, from the off. He wants our eyes on the linen because it proves two things. One, the linen proved that Jesus was really dead. Look back with me at chapter 19 and verse 40. Here's Joseph 
and Nicodemus, two prominent members of the Sanhedrin who believed in Jesus, they took Jesus' body from the Romans, the two of them wrapped it with spices in what? Strips of linen. It's repeated again. And they did this because Jesus was really dead. The Romans had made sure of that, of course. Now, some people like to, who are skeptical about the resurrection like to argue against this. They propose that the reason why we don't find a body on the third day is that Jesus had not actually died. He had only fainted. The question is, does that argument have any weights? Well, not when you take into account the various things that happen in the text. Like the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, the request that he makes, he himself personally sought confirmation of Christ's death from the centurion in charge of the execution. Or the soldier's assessment, the soldiers didn't need to break Jesus' legs to expedite his death as they did the other criminals who were crucified that day. Jesus was already dead. And then there was, of course, the blood and water because actually they thought, it's kind of odd, isn't it? Actually, he already looks dead, so I'm not going to break his legs. I'll just take this great big spear and shove it into his side. And that's what they did. And what happened? Blood and water flowed. Now, the fact that blood and water flowed proved Jesus' death. Because what happens when you die is that the heavy red cells that give blood its color separate from the clear serous fluid that carries it, etc., etc. You look bored. I'll move on. But also, the, the fourth thing we see is the permission that Pilate gave. Finally, Joseph of Arimathea had asked for permission to take Jesus' body down. So this is after he sought confirmation of his death. Another occasion, when Joseph asked for the body, Pilate grants it. And he only grants it on account that Jesus' body had expired. So with all of that, John Stott wonderfully writes this. Are we then seriously to believe that Jesus was all the time only in a swoon that after the rigors and pains of trial and mockery and flogging and crucifixion he could survive 36 hours in a stone sepulcher it's a great word with neither warmth nor medical care that he could then rally sufficiently to perform the superhuman feat of shifting the boulder which secured the mouth of the tomb and that without disturbing the Roman guard set outside that then, weak and sickly and hungry, he could appear to his disciples in such a way as to give them the impression that he had just vanquished death? I don't think so. Not at all. Such credulity is incredible. Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead and John wants your eyes on the linen to prove it. They wrapped him up because he was stone cold dead. And the linen provides then further confirmation, secondly, that Jesus really was alive. He had risen. Now, some skeptics like to argue that the grave robbers stole the body. That's why the tomb was open. That's why Christ's body was nowhere to be seen. Well, does that kind of argument hold any weight? Well, no, the, the linen. Fix your eyes on the linen. It contradicts that argument. You see, in the original Greek, John uses this specific word to help us picture the linen wrappings that were left in the tomb. He helps us to see with this word, it's entetu ligmenon. It they were not, these, these wrappings were not strewn about the tomb like someone had just come in looking for gold on this body or something. They hadn't been ripped off in haste. John's word tells us they were not even partially unraveled. 
No, the word that John uses to help us see that the linen, help, helps us to see that the linen wrappings were still entwined, still, if you like, wrapped, only flatter. You see, the linen was left lying there like the discarded chrysalis of the risen Christ. Jesus in his glorified body had somehow, in some way, passed through the linen. His body, the glorified body, is a supernatural body, yet it retains its tangibleness. You can touch it. He can do stuff. You know, in John 21, we'll find that he would sit on a beach and eat broiled fish. Who would eat broiled fish? Apart from to prove that you had been raised from the dead. That's my opinion. This is no grave robbery. No one stealing the body would bother to unwrap the body. They would just lump it over their shoulder and run. They certainly wouldn't rewrap the linen or especially fold up the headcloth neatly like some kind of hotel maid. Now I admit it's conceivable to have a thief that has OCD and likes things to be folded up neatly, but you have to admit it is absolutely one in a billion. Billion, billion. No, it's truer to say that Christ was truly raised from the dead. In John 11, Lazarus emerged from his tomb with his grave clothes still on. He'll still need them, but not Jesus. Why does John want us to see the linen? To prove that Jesus really did die, and he really is alive. So that means, brothers and sisters, friends gathered here, is that the linen ought to prompt faith in you. It's there. Your eyes are directed towards it to help you believe that Jesus died for your sin and he rose again for your justification. That's what it's there for. This is why John writes this whole gospel account. If you look with me over the page at John 2031 these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name so these things in the resurrection account of the empty tomb apart from the linen is there to help you believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that by believing in him you might have life in his name that's why John wants us to see this He had seen Jesus perform many, many miracles before. Maybe John, even as he writes this, recalls the fact that he, Jesus made reference to his own resurrection. Like in John 2, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. They're pointing to the bricks and mortar. Jesus is pointing to his own body. They did not understand that he was going to be the meeting place with God. Not a bricks and mortar. My encouragement for you, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, is to look at the linen, strange as that may sound, and let it prompt faith in you. John, as an eyewitness, only chooses three accounts of the resurrection here in, this, in chapter 20. So he talks about Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene in a second, but John first chooses to give us insight into the tomb. He, the tomb is open, not so that Jesus could get out, but so that we could see in. see what's there 
so that you might believe that the man of sorrows really was delivered over to death for your sins and raised to life for your justification. So the tomb, friends, is not empty. There's some linen in there. But there's, that's not all we find. We have a second look in the tomb in verses 10 to 13, don't we? And what do we find? There are angels in there. Angels in there. Verses 10, verse 10, the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. She's devastated. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Now, what we find here is that the angels question Mary's demeanor on this day. Now, Mary is devastated. Death has robbed her of the one who had completely changed her life. Jesus had rescued her from an old life and given her a new one. And she'd given her life to serve him, but now he's gone. Now, to us then, in light of what she's experiencing, she's been torn apart from the one who's rescued her, the one she loves. And tears then seem like the only fitting response. That's how we feel when we feel, when we are grieved. So what then do we make of the angel's question as she looks in and sees them? Isn't it a bit insensitive? I mean, you don't go up to someone who's devastated by grief and say, what's the matter? No, I want you to see they're not being insensitive. They're readying her for joy. They're readying her heart for happiness like she's never known before. I always picture Mary and the angels really in contrast. I picture her with mascara running all down her face. I know it wasn't invented then. Maybe it was. I'm a man. I don't know that. Picture her with mascara running all down her face, chest heaving with big sobs. You know, she's just a mess. She's so, so upset. And then I picture the angels with, you know, the happiest of happy smiles that any of us could muster. I think they're so filled with joy that it's just written on their faces. Now, what a contrast. Now, I should point out, friends, that here's the difference between those who know about a resurrection and those who don't. So those who don't have any hope in death or any hope through death or after death should walk around like Mary. Death is devastating. But if you know that Jesus really is raised from the dead and that the life you live through death is through faith in him, so that your faith delivers you from death, you'll have a happy face. The happiest of happy smiles. Or sure, you'll still die. This body will be done away with. But death has lost its sting. Death at this moment is still wincing from where its sting had been removed. No, death no longer acts like a master general crushing you, making you scared anymore. No, since Jesus rose from the dead, death has no power over you except to be the usher. The one who takes you to the very presence of God himself. And that is all. Has no power. 
because Jesus robbed it of its power. So that even for the Christian, it is not death to die. That's why they are so happy. The angels know the truth and the reality of the resurrection. In fact, by the, sound, by the looks of things, from what, the way John positions everything, Jesus has appeared behind Mary. She's so blinded by her tears. And yet to angels from heaven, there is nothing more absurd than tears at the empty tomb. Apart from some linen. Nothing more absurd. And by the way, why Mary doesn't recognize these guys as angels shouldn't bother us. The Bible contains lots of occurrences where angels appear as men or supernaturally conceal their true identity from the person they're addressing until the right time. In any case, there's no time for a response from these angels. Mary just becomes aware of this other presence behind her. I love one of the church fathers, John Chrysostom, said, it was an expression of love and awe that passed over the angel faces that caused Mary to turn to Jesus. I love that. And there he was, the risen Lord Jesus. And here we find, so we've answered the question, what's in the tomb? Here's where we answer the question, what's not in the tomb? And this point will be very quick. What's What's not in the tomb? <laughs> Jesus. Jesus, against all odds, is not in the tomb. And Mary's still in utter despair. She doesn't quite get it at first. She's, she thinks he's the gardener. You know, okay, maybe it was a, maybe she, I don't know. Maybe she thought it was a borrowed tomb. Therefore, actually, we need space. We need space for this tomb. We need to move the body. We need to move it now. There's a funeral today. It's a, I don't know how it happened. But she's somehow trying to compute in her mind what is going on. The body that was laid here is not here anymore. And have you, have you taken him? You know, she's almost accusing the gardener. And then there's just one thing. What she, again, she doesn't recognize him because the moment of disclosure has not yet come. It comes beautifully, doesn't it? Mary's in a frantic tiz, wondering what is going on? Where is, where is the one? This is just the last twist of the knife. I can't cope with this. Mary. No one says her name like that. Mary, he says. He calls her name and reorientates her entire existence. Do you see that? It's beautiful to see. And it's what Jesus does for all of us who don't know him. Even 2,000 odd years later, we who wander around in a mess because of our sin, flustered at the fact that the things that we plan in life, the way we seek to live our life just doesn't work. Life is hard. Suffering is real. People die. We struggle. Relationships are torn guilt and shame doesn't go away yet when the Lord our God calls you by name the sheep that he knows by name they know his voice when he calls it reorientates our entire existence and centers our eyes on him 
who has done something so immeasurably wonderful by his death and by his resurrection. And that's what we see Jesus. She obviously, as Jesus is disclosed to her, she just clings to him, falls at his feet. And Jesus says, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers. Wow. He has never called them that before. Oh, he's called them dull. And he's called them servants. But he's never called them brothers before. What has changed? They have been reconciled to God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ to the point that Jesus is their brother through faith. As Jesus himself says, I am returning. I am returning. He had already said in John 14 and in 16, it is better for you that I go away. I'm returning to my Father and your Father. My God's your gods demonstrating for us that his death and his resurrection serve to reconcile sinful aberrant people like us to God through faith and it's a gift from God that's why on this resurrection day we ought to look a lot happier than we actually look We ought to be so joyous, not just on a day like this, but every day that we remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that ought to be every day. He did this for our joy. To reorientate us by calling our name and reconciling us to the Father by calling us brothers and sisters so that we might know salvation. And a Father that we were once estranged from but now wonderfully reconciled. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's bow our heads.